MDN-TV, the podcast. Be abreast with now. Never miss a thing with MDN-TV, the podcast. We love to keep you in the present with diverse goodies from secular and non-secular subjects of global interest. Join us. Grab more from these series. Listen to our podcasts. The undeniable choice. It's sundown. The day has just begun. Good morning, good morning, good morning, everybody. Yes. <laughs> this is MDN Shows Running With The Times, only on MDN TV, the podcast. And I am Major Daughter. Welcome, welcome, welcome to all our listeners and viewers around the world. Meet us in the comments. We are live there. Engage, ask questions. I mean, share this podcast right away. And if you have not subscribed, what are you waiting for? Because this is the hottest show on the planet. And we bring you one of the hottest guests on the planet. Yeah. And we want to say thanks to Gazillion Times once again for coming back again and again. Whether you spend 10 minutes with us, 15 minutes with us, 5 minutes with us. All that matters is that you are here and always supporting. Tell you what. My guest has written a book. Um, he has co-authored a book with someone on um, genocide. This is something we don't really talk about because these are some of those sensitive topics, uncomfortable topics or uncomfortable things to talk about. But today, he's going to take us through we're going to look at genocide. We have experienced this in Africa in a greater measure. These are things we need to talk about without debating. We need to be comfortable to talk about genocide. It doesn't matter who it's affected or who's been affected by it, but we need to be able to talk about these things without going into any debate. And this is exactly what I've been saying for some time. What are the causes of genocide? And how can we avoid it? Is it, is it even avoidable? Whew. Let's find out right after this. MDN-TV, the podcast. Be abreast with now. Never miss a thing with MDN-TV, the podcast. We love to keep you in the present with diverse goodies from secular and non-secular subjects of global interest. Join us. Grab more from these series. Listen to our podcasts. The undeniable choice. The undeniable choice is indeed today. Honorable Paul Johnson, look, he has co-authored a book with Dr. Emily Bosher on genocide and authoritarian governments. And today, he's going to tell us about that book and what inspired it. Honorable, thanks a gazillion times for saying yes and for availing yourself and for sharing yourself with the world. I say this with all humility because... These are some of those sensitive subjects or sensitive topics to really talk about. But here you are. You have even co-authored a book. You're starting a conversation. So please take well, this opportunity. Major, thank you very much for hosting this. Yes. Honorable Paul? 
Uh, yeah, I, I just, you know, first I'd like to thank you for hosting this. Um, uh, you're correct. The book that my partner and I wrote, uh, my partner is Dr. Emily Basha. She's a psychologist who's done a tremendous amount of work with people in the United States um, who were terrorists from foreign countries. She's worked with people who committed capital crimes. Um, and I was mayor of the city of Phoenix. I have spent a lot of time on political issues, but both of us together studied uh, genocides and holocausts and what causes them and, and what, uh, what are the forces behind making them real. Dr. Basha's family was actually persecuted by Saddam Hussein out of Iraq. And uh, that persecution with a number of her family members being tortured and killed gave her a, a unique understanding uh, as well. But, you know, the, the key to it is that, that when you start looking at Holocaust, the, the question that people oftentimes ask, again, is what causes them? What, what's the, the thing that makes this happen? And oftentimes they're looking for who is to blame. Yes. Certainly authoritarian governments play a, a huge role in that. But if you, you know, if you look at what happened in Iraq, you can see where you know, literally they had 17-year-old uh, boys being taken up to the gallows to be murdered during uh, the, the Iraqi Holocaust or the Iraqi persecution of the Jews. And when that took place, what was fascinating is you know, that the people out in the crowd were yelling and screaming and dancing and singing. They, they were happy to see it take place. I had a friend of mine who uh, was a survivor in uh, who was a survivor in Bosnia. He was uh, actually a Muslim who someone who the Milosevic was looking to uh, wipe off the planet by doing an ethnic cleansing. But one of the stories that I remember from it was that when a set of when a number of U.S. troops were approaching a ditch, we knew that the uh, we knew that the Serbians were burying people in mass graves. There were a group of people there who were putting dirt onto this long ditch with tractors and with shovels. All of them were civilians, none of them were soldiers. And as the American troops pulled up, they all started running off. Well, as the American troops came up to the ditch, there were the people who were in the ditch, many of them were still alive. They, they pulled children out who were crying. They, they were just being buried alive. And the question is, how does that happen? Who yes. does this? How, how do people get to the point where they'll take part in that? Now, if you went to Iraq, you know, there are a number of people who would blame Arabs. But if you went to Bosnia, the, the Muslims would blame Christians because Milosevic was a Christian. Certainly the Tutsis blame the Hutus. You can find people in Germany, the Jews who were in Germany who blame Germans. The answer is we're all susceptible to this type of thinking. There is good and evil inside of each one of us. And understanding the role that we play and the importance of us being accountable as individuals is one of the first keys to being able to understand how to avoid these types of uh, atrocities. Wow. I, I'm going to pause there and back off a little bit, and I'll tell you why. You are the host of the optimistic american podcast but you also call yourself an optimistic american and you say the world is better than we think and america today is better than we can imagine even uh, accountability and i'm sure 
we can also look at South Africa that way. But how did you now come up with this optimism and you deciding or making a choice that you're just going to look at things differently? The reason I bring all these honorable say, you just said there's evil in each and every one of us. So you are sparking some things. But maybe there's a reason even behind your saying that. How did this come about? Sure. Let me, let me talk about this from a couple of different directions. First, what I'd like to do is talk about the reason for optimism. And then the second thing I want to do is I want to talk about authoritarian governments and ideologies. Again, yes. the copy, the name of the book is Addictive Ideologies. But the reason hmm. for optimism, if you're, op if you're optimistic, that doesn't mean that you ignore the problems. There are problems in society that are, are challenges, no doubt about it. But if you look at the world today, overwhelmingly, the world is getting better. Illiteracy rates are dropping. Child immortality uh, is improving. Uh, poverty, uh, we've, we've lifted somewhere near a billion people out of poverty. Now, when you ask the question of how that happened, I can tell you there's no doubt in my mind that a big portion of that happened because of free markets. And yes. free markets came from societies that were individual-based societies. In the United States, we, 250 years ago, our founders drafted what was called the Constitution, and that Constitution was based upon a moral doctrine that came out of the Declaration of Independence. That Declaration said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Now, that meant all men and women are created equal, and that they are endowed upon by their creator with certain inalienable rights. The concept was that each of us has something special inside of us that is worthy of dignity, and that government has an obligation to treat all of us equal. In the United States, the president of the United States cannot take a piece of property away from an American citizen without compensating them for it, without paying them for it. A citizen has the right to speak up, even against the president. And from that, we've created marketplaces, we've created commerce, we've created a very, very strong economy, and that economy has spread around the world. Western liberal democracy is something that's taken root not only here, but in Europe and many other places throughout the world. And where it does take root, you watch the economy improve. In fact, China likes to argue that they've had a resurgence in their economy. Well, here's the truth to what's happened in China. China, during Mao Zedong, it was a communist government. During, uh, during Mao's period of time, they had the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. It probably cost them about 60 million people died from those two efforts. But when the United States agreed to let them into the world market, Richard Nixon went and met with Mao, had a conversation with them, and then later Jimmy Carter met with Deng Xiaoping, and they agreed to allow them to be able to transport their goods around the world, to use the American finance system, and also to sell goods into the United States. Yes. When that happened, their economy went from about a 2% growth to a 9% growth. They released many of their free market forces. And, and by the way, many of those forces, it was agriculture, who had recognized that under Mao, they had starved to death because of what was called the collectivization of farms, where they took peasants, divided them into two groups, the really poor peasants and the kind of poor peasants, and the kind of poor peasants 
They took their property away from them and murdered them. They took the others and said, you're now going to be forced to work on their land, which was now state land, and you're going to do it for a cheaper price. Well, what that resulted in is many of those farmers starved to death and production dropped even further. Mm. What, what happened under Deng Xiaoping is those forces began to be released, even without him doing it, because they said, we're not going to starve to death again. And as those free markets began to develop, as people began to trade with one another, they began to see prosperity, improvements took place. Now, unfortunately, Xi Jinping today is taking that all away. He's back to nationalizing uh, different corporations inside of China. He is uh, beginning to He's, he's implemented one of the most the, one of the most toughest surveillance systems of a citizenry anywhere. His, you know, his ability to be able to hear any type of social marketing chatter and take away people's credit, take away people's ability to have homes, take away people's access to healthcare, is unprecedented. There was a man in Russia during the Soviet Union. His name was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a communist and. He actually went to fight for the communists in Germany. He was put in a prisoner of war camp in Germany, brutalized there. And when he got out, his own leader, Joseph Stalin, put him in prison again, put him in the gulag. When he got to the gulag, this is what's fascinating about Alexander. He could have been mad at Stalin. He could have been mad at his country. But instead, mm. he said that he was going to be accountable for what he had done. And so he took a look at it. There was a group of farmers there that they called kulaks. He is a, I think he was a captain in the Communist Party, was sent to take these kulaks who were poor farmers, take their farms away from them, and then they shipped them to Siberia. He said he's shipped over 10,000 families, 60,000 people. All of hmm. them died. The estimates are between 20 and 60 million people in Russia were killed there. Now, Alexander said, why? What, why did I do that? Why was I willing to do it? Yes. He said that the ideology of communism created a good and evil. There were good people who were communists and evil people who were the other people. He said that instead of him looking at his own guilt before he got to prison, he said, well, I'm a communist and those poor farmers, those kulaks, they're evil because they own free property. They own real estate. And it, he, because he saw them as evil, as he exported the evil out, out of himself into them, yes. he was able to do atrocity to them. The, the key is this, ideologies begin to shift our ability to see other people as evil as opposed to recognizing the evil that's within us. Mm. In an individualistic society, like the United States and other Western liberal democracies, because you focus on the individual, you can't blame other groups. You have to take the responsibility yourself for your own actions. And that's step one, being accountable. The second step is knowing the truth. Look, leaders, the news media, uh, political parties, they lie to you. They try to convince you mm. that the world is worse than you think it is, right? And here's the reason for it. It's called the negative bias. Inside your mind, you have an amygdala. And the amygdala is like the reptilian portion of your brain. It's, it's, a, it's the oldest portion of your brain. The neocortex, which is this frontal portion of the brain, is where all thought takes place, rational thought takes place, where optimism lives, where you find love, 
um, where you find the ability to innovate and to create. But if I can terrify you, that amygdala has the ability to overpower the neocortex. It's called the amygdala hijack. It can take over that frontal portion of the brain and terrify you so bad that you can't be rational, that you can't be optimistic, that you can't be innovative, that you can't create. So I can steal your agency from you if I can just terrify you about the other groups. Now, the key is mm. to once you own your own agency, once you begin to become accountable for yourself, you can't let that happen because they're stealing your agency from you. And in the process, they're making you less productive, less creative. They're giving you less of an ability to deal with the challenges and the problems that we have. It's, it's one of the single biggest keys to being able to survive and to thrive. So it's, it starts with knowing the truth and it moves to being accountable for yourself. Now there are seven ideals that we put into the book. The others yes. included over safety, the, the understanding the importance of, of becoming resilient. You only become resilient by listening to people who you don't agree with. You know, free speech is a funny thing. I, I, I'm a wow. big believer in wow. speech, but it's messy. It's really messy, right? People mm. say things sometimes that just inflame you. But what happens in the process is that one person says something that's inflaming and then another person says something that's more logical and out of the process comes a better thought. You can see that in the United States over and over again. We have these debates and people watch us around the world and they go, oh my gosh, that's terrible that you guys say those types of things. We do, but when we get done, we come up with a better us. We come up with a better product. We come up wow. with a better marketplace because those ideas are allowed to be, they're allowed to confront one another and people become more resilient when they learn how to deal with people talking about things that they don't necessarily agree with. You know, another uh, ideal is, is love. Um, there was a man named Martin Luther King in the United States who is one of my heroes and the heroes yes. of, of many, many Americans. Martin Luther King, who was known for talking about um, trying to uh, trying to judge people based upon the content of their character, not by the color of their skin, uh, talked about love. And he said there were three types of love. Actually, if you go back to the Greek language, there were actually seven different types of love, but he narrowed them down to three. He said the first one was romantic love. He said romantic love is a is a you know it's different. It it has a different type of feel and a different type of effect. The second, he said, was called philia. Philia means brotherly love. In the United States, we have a city called Philadelphia. It means the city of brotherly love. But that's where you love other people who are part of your family, who, who are part of your group, your, your tribe, or the people who you're connected to. But the last one was called agape. Agape was the most divine of all the loves, according to the Greeks because it was, about, it was about learning to love people that you don't even know. In fact, loving people that, that are your enemies, that you don't agree with, and being able to deal with them through that process. It's a very, very powerful concept. And once you begin to understand its benefits, it's massive. So as an example, when he marched on the bridge on the, going into Selma, it was a very famous, um, a very famous period of time in the United States when people who were black were 
incredibly discriminated against, and 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 it was a, it was a horrific period of time, especially in the South. Well, he decided to march onto this bridge, and he knew that there would be members of law enforcement that were white that were probably going to beat them. Now, here's what he said to his people: When we get there, we're not going to fight back. Mm. When we get there, and they call you a name. We're not going to call them a name back. He said, because the public's watching. And if we call them a name back, they won't know who started this. If we yes. fight back, they won't know whose fault mm -hmm. it was. He says, but if it's very clear that we're starting with love and they're starting with hate, the public, that in general, people, all people have both good in them and evil in them. And that if we can bring that good out of them saying, no, that's not acceptable. We can get the public on our side and we can win. Now, it worked, right? He moved the American public, white, brown, black. He moved all Americans onto his favor saying, that's not who we are. We can't accept that. But he utilized love to be able to do it. It quite simply is the most powerful concept that we have to be able to deal with our problems. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. The way you just put it up so well. And you yourself are very, um, you are a very accomplished man because at the age of 30 years, you became uh, the youngest mayor of Phoenix, Arizona. Not only that. I was. I was. Yes. And not only that, you also managed a lot of... Um, presidential com uh, candidates. Now, the question is, you go and write on genocide and you talk about optimism and all this. What would have inspired you to write on genocide and not the dollar, for instance? Why not write on the dollar? Why not write on the wokeness that is there or, you know, there's so much. I mean, you could write, uh, you could have written about the war that is on women. If there's even such a thing, if you believe that there's war on women, but you, you choose, you carefully choose genocide and authoritarian governments. Why? Because... I believe that one of the things that we've become challenged by uh, in the United States and Western democracies, and for that matter, around the world, is that the world's become a little more divisive, that people are, um, that people are looking for someone to blame. Again, what happens in an authoritarian government, what, what an authoritarian does is first, they try to terrify you. They try to convince you that the world is going bad. Second, they try to give you an ideology. Usually what the ideology does is it separates people based upon the oppressed and the oppressor, right? Yes. So they say, well, if we're in Rwanda, it would have been the Hutus saying they were being oppressed by the Tutsis, even though the Hutus were 98% of the public, right? They convinced their people that they were two different races, which in itself is arguably wrong, but the second thing that they convinced them of was that the other group was oppressing them. By doing that, they stripped away the individuality of both sides. And they just created, again, two differing groups who were going to go to war with one another. What 
what I've seen in watching genocides around the world, and, and I've had, you know, I, I, I was sent by uh, the, administ the federal administration to Poland when Poland was freed from the Soviet Union. I've had time to spend time in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, and other places. And I've been to almost all of the major Holocaust sites of this century. Um, here's, again, what I can tell you. The, you know, it's average people, normal people who participate in them who lose their sense of agency, who lose their sense of being responsible for themselves, who lose accountability, and then who take part in helping commit heinous acts. In our society, in Western democracy, the key is for people to understand the role that they play in making our democracy work. It's key for them to understand that, that you know, how well we have it. And what I knew when we took on genocide it's such a negative topic, right? It's, it's one of those things that, that, that almost brings a sadness just thinking about it. But the key that I wanted to get at least uh, Americans to think about, and for that matter, people around the world, is that it's avoidable. It's avoidable mm. if we take account for ourselves. It's avoidable if we don't allow authoritarians to terrify us. And it's avoidable if we just simply recognize that... Um, you know, that the world is better than you think. And in the United States, it's better than you could even possibly imagine. Wow. You say governments lie. You say media lies. Let me say media reports uh, bad news. So they carefully choose when, what they want to tell people because they've got to report what will sell, right? They don't report good news. So it's not their work to uh, uh, set the atmosphere positive and set, uh, prepare the people, right, to be optimistic about their countries, nations, or even their governments. Then what about governments? And uh, is it possible for a balance to be striking here anywhere? Yeah, so, so let me start with the idea of the media lies. Um, I, I'm going to frame it just a little bit different. I know that I made that comment a moment ago, but so you're right. The job of the media is to tell us what's going wrong. Yes. At least that's their, their opinion of what their job is. You know, it's funny. When I was a little boy, I remember uh, <laughs> in, the United, in the United States, I was nine years old. We were going to the moon, right? Apollo 9, I think it was Apollo 9, was heading to the moon in 1969. And we, I can remember running home every day when I was like eight or nine years old and watching what was happening. I could tell you the names of all the astronauts. I could tell you the names of their spouses. I could tell you the name of the engineers. I watched the countdown and the takeoff and the capsule flipping around. And, and then I also was able to watch them landing on the moon and coming back home. It was an incredible moment of pride and every single channel covered it. Now, one of the things that I noticed in the United States was um, about six months ago, a year ago, I, I had to come home and do a spreadsheet and I turned on the television, I turned on CNN and literally for the entire week, every piece of information that came out of them was bad news. So I turned it on Fox News, which is kind of the counter station in the US. Same thing, it was just a, a different set of problems, all right? But both of them were trying to terrify people into being afraid of the other side. So, Fox was trying to terrify people to be afraid of Democrats and CNN was trying to terrify people to be afraid of Republicans. Mm. For just a few minutes at three o'clock on Thursday, 
there was a spaceship that went into outer space with William Shatner on it, who used to be called Captain Kirk on Star Trek. But yes. literally, he got to go into outer space, came back, and he was crying. They, they didn't cover the entire story. They didn't cover the countdown. They didn't cover the astronauts' lives. Yeah. Yet here were there are two men in the United States that are in a race to get to Mars with private sector money that got people into outer space. They could have covered that every bit as much as they could have been covering the negative news. It's not that what they're saying is a lie, that when, when they talk about the negative news all day long, that, mm. that is a portion of what's happening in society. But when you don't put it in perspective and you don't help people understand that there are things that are going right as well, then it's not the truth either. Now, I, I yes. had a great chance at dinner with, uh, when I was mayor, I was 29 <laughs> years old. I had a dinner with Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill and a guy named Pierre Salinger, who was, uh, Pierre Salinger was uh, President John F. Kennedy's speechwriter. He wrote very famous speeches for him, and it was a fascinating dinner. And I remember at the end of the dinner, a couple of things. One was that Pierre Salinger said that Ronald Reagan and John F. Kennedy were exactly alike, which blew my mind. I was like, how can you even say that? And he said, no, look, he said, they're both optimists. They, they both believe you can solve the problems that we have. They just have a different way of approaching it. But I asked him, what's the single most important thing that you can do as a leader? And he said, give people hope. Yes. Give them hope that it's going to be okay. Our leaders today, our media today, our political parties today around the world, because of the negative bias, because they profit from doing so, they only are giving them negative news. And, and the answer is you have to give them the negative news because it's, it's part of your job. But leave them with some hope. Leave them with some belief that maybe we can make things better. People need that. And it's an incredibly short supply. Hmm. And there are many, many things that we can be hopeful about. Yeah. Wow. You know, there's hope for a tree that when it's cut down, it will grow again. Now, if there's hope for a tree, how much more with us humans? The gospel coming your way. DJ. Boy is on fire. Just busy one time. All time. I know that's right. Am I right about it? About it. I feel well. This is the test. Pumping out the jam. 107.7 The Bridge. Keep it locked. It's a Fiverr exclusive. 